minimalists. <laughs> All right, before we dive into our surprise questions today, and before we talk about the good life, let's read some more about less. Uh, Bill, we do this uh, segment each week where we read some sort of article, sort of a, just a jump off point. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Ryan Holiday and his his daily stoic. Um, but he, yes, I've met him. Ah, OK. Uh, beautiful. He was he's a former podcast guest of ours, and he has this article on the daily stoic. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, what is stoicism? A definition plus nine stoic exercises to get you started. And so while nine exercises seems overwhelming to me, but let's, let's talk about a few of these. Uh, the first one is practice misfortune. Um, and I think you kind of touched upon this a little bit already, Bill, uh, practicing misfortune and understanding that the fortunes that we have are, are by definition ephemeral. You know, on, on a long enough timeline, everything is ephemeral. All these things that seem so permanent. And so maybe practicing misfortune is a way to sort of embrace impermanence. Yeah, there will be a last thing, last time for every single thing you do. It's um, overwhelming, weeks, daunting, right? Like well, I think but, about like the last uh, time that I picked negative. up my daughter. There will be a last breath you take. There will be a last heartbeat you have. And in, the t- in, in these recent times, um, the night before we went into quarantine, I went to a restaurant. And, uh, you know, thinking this is a great restaurant, got to come back here. Now realizing that that could be the last time I ever go to that restaurant. Because mm-hmm. when we get back to normal again, that um, could not maybe exist uh, and but and that's a really negative sounding thought, but realize it has a, a bright side as well. And that means when you do something, you should savor it. You should have in the corner of your mind the realization that this could be it. This could be the last time. So uh, take whatever joy you can out of it. And, you know, if you thought an experience could be repeated infinitely, you would uh, become very casual about it. You'd just assume that it's always going to be there. You would never truly appreciate it. Mm. I have this concern, you know, that if if there is a place like heaven, that we would get there and we'd think this is great and you give us a few days and Mm. we'd start taking it for granted. And uh, so I'm not sure if you take the same personality with you when you go to heaven. I don't know if you'd be any happier than you are on earth. Yeah. And even if you're grateful, for, and in fact, I wanted to talk to you about, about gratitude uh, because uh, I, w- I don't remember any, uh, any sort of explicit mention of gratitude in a guide to the good life. Uh, and, and in fact, right before we started this conversation, I, I looked at the index to try to find the word gratitude and could not find it. So maybe talk to me a little, a little bit about gratitude because it seems to me that that is an important part of stoicism uh, however, maybe it's not. Maybe we, we frame it differently from from the traditional word of uh, gratitude. Yeah, well, one of the practices and one of the entry practices I recommend for people is what's called negative visualization. And what you do to practice this, it's it's really easy. You know, Zen. You might have to work at it for years in order to get it right. But this is something you can you can do in a uh, a minute minute and a half. So what I want you to do is think about something that you value and are really glad is part of your life. And now have a flickering thought about what it would be like to lose that thing. I don't want you to dwell on that. It's a flickering thought. And what it'll do is it'll readjust your framework. And when you next experience the thing you imagined yourself without, you're going to realize this is really great. Uh, and if you don't do that, then you start taking it for granted. And that limits the amount of delight you can derive from that. So if you're a practicing Stoic, you go around in a state of perpetual, near perpetual gratitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, my wife and I, because of the uh, quarantining, uh, when we go outside, we simply go out and take long walks. And I'll find myself thanking the blue sky for existing, the trees, they're wonderful, different kinds of bark. Isn't it wonderful that we live in a world 
like that. And of course, then I'll turn to my wife and I'll thank her for existing. So Mm. uh, you live in a world where you can take absolutely everything for granted, or you can take your life for the miraculous thing that it is. Number five on, on Ryan Holiday's list here is memento mori, meditate on your mortality. And there's a quote from, from Seneca, and there's another one from Marcus Aurelius, two, two of the most uh, famous Stoics, although I'm a big fan of Epictetus myself. Um, but Marcus Aurelius says, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. And then uh, Holiday goes on to say, that was a personal reminder to continue living a life of virtue now and not wait. I find that quite often in, in modern times, we, we put things off till tomorrow or, or someday, thinking that someday is, is a day of the week. But uh, of course, yeah, I, I think of that word someday as being a very dangerous word when used inappropriately because it gives us permission to put off the, the meaningful tasks now, the virtuous tasks now, and instead maybe pacify ourselves in the meantime with ephemera. Yeah, you know, the past is gone. We can't change it. The future might or might not happen. And, and if it does happen, it might happen in an unexpected way. All we've ever got is now, and the, the Buddhists realize that. So the Stoics realize that as well. So what you do, you're wasting your life if you spend now in a state of anxiety when you don't need to, in a state of anger when you don't need to. You're a fool to do that, but you're a human. Mm. So those sorts of things are going to happen. You need Um, therefore, to be thoughtful about it. You need to be mindful. You need to realize when something happens, it could make you angry. You need to realize you're the biggest fool on the planet if you waste those moments stewing when you could be enjoying your existence. Let me ask you this. And uh, Sean, by the way, if you could put a link to that article in the show notes, there are seven other really good points in there, uh, sort of seven other practices to, to get started with, with a, a stoic practice. But I noticed something in, in your book, Bill, uh, in A Guide to the Good Life, that uh, there was something special about the 6th century BC that sort of sprouted, I don't know what you would call it, modern philosophy, maybe. What was so special about, about that century that everything seemed to coalesce uh, at that time? And then, and then ever since then, we've had philosophy. Yeah, I think it started in the East, in India, in uh, China, and then kind of moved West. Or what happened is people from the West went to the East, encountered it, and brought it back with them. Um, and it's hard to know what it was. You know, that's it's nothing in the water, nothing in the air, but there were some people who had uh, some basic insights. And then there were other people who listened and uh, acted accordingly. But it is a mysterious thing, and it is one of the most important transitions for humanity. I mean, think about other transitions, you know, figuring out how to start a fire, figuring out how to uh, make stone tools. Those were big changes, and they change the physical environment. But you have Buddhism come along in particular, and it changes the mental environment. Mm. Um, but why that happened uh, to me is a mystery. And a, a wonderful mystery, and I'm uh, delighted that it happened, but I'm not really sure how. Well, let me ask you, why, why did the Stoics make it a point to think about all the bad things that could happen? I, I, found, I, I find that to be, at first glance, counterintuitive, and then when you dig deeper, it, it starts to make sense. Yeah. That there's two things you can mean by thinking, and I, the way I, the phrase I use is a flickering thought. That's one thought, one way you can think. Another way you can think is to uh, dwell on something, ruminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Stoics were uh, very much opposed to dwelling on on uh, things, but flickering thoughts. What they do is they. Um, re-anchor things. So, so there's this notion of, of anchoring uh, and how happy you are at any a given moment depends on where your anchor is. If uh, you have uh, a can of beans for dinner and uh, that's what you've got, so is it a good meal or a bad meal? Well, it depends on your anger. 
If you were expecting some lavish four-course dinner and all there was was a can of beans, you're going to think, this is miserable and uh, what an unlucky person I am. If you were expecting see, to have to no food at all. I, yeah. I would say it seems to me that expectations here in, in just about every context are the, the calls of our suffering. Yeah. And, and the, the psychological term would be the anchor. So it's what you're expecting versus what you get. And the interesting thing is you have limited control over what you get. But if you work at it, you have considerable control over what you expect. And this notion of, of thinking about losing things, thinking about not having things, they're psychological devices for sinking your anchor deeper. So whatever does show up, you're going to say, well, you know, this is pretty good. It could be a lot worse. This is pretty good. Well, let me ask you, do, do the, we're speaking of, of pretty good, do the, the, the Stoics shun pleasure? And also, um, I like to de delineate pleasure from joy, which I also think is different from happiness. I mean, these are, I believe, different emotions. And, and while they might be used interchangeably, in, in our everyday vernacular, I, I think they, they actually mean fundamentally different things. Uh, did the Stoics shun pleasure? Um, they didn't shun pleasure, but they weren't pleasure seekers either. Uh -huh. So for me, the, the word I like is delight, to be able to take delight and uh, a life in which you perpetually take delight or find all sorts of sources of delight, that's going to be a joyful, a joyful life. Um, pleasure, you know, mere physical pleasure depends on so many things and, and uh, you have to go out of your way to, to, to get the things that will give you the pleasure. Delight. Um, so uh, on the, I mentioned my wife and I were, have been taking walks. If you understand um, the world, if you understand nature, if you understand flowers, you can go around and it's like being in a wonderland. So we have all these trees where the, the buds are just starting to open and you look at it and you think, that's just miraculous. And then you notice there's an ant crawling across one of the buds and it's just like, wow, this is incredible. Or you can be completely oblivious to that and instead thinking about how your cell phone is one generation behind and somebody else has a <laughs> better car than you do. And, and uh, it, it's an interesting thing. It's your choice. You can live a, a life full of delight and you can live a life of misery depending on your values and depending on the effort you put into it. Well, speaking of values, what, what did the, sto the Stoics value the most? They valued um, tranquility, and tranquility is a word that's a slippery word. Uh, so it isn't a state of, of emotional numbness, but it's a state where you're experiencing relatively few negative emotions, like anger, like anxiety, like hatred, and an abundance of positive emotions. So positive emotions, you know, when you've done something good for somebody else, you get that glow. That's oh, yeah. a positive emotion. You should seek that. Um, when you uh, try to do something and succeed, that's a positive emotion. Uh, you should take delight in that. Uh, so they were, uh, the goal was you, you need a life full uh, of positive emotions with very few negative emotions, which, of course, was pretty close to the same goal as the Zen Buddhists had. And I mentioned that I was kind of torn between do I want to be a Zen Buddhist and, or a Stoic, and I realized they're aiming at the same thing. They just have radically different techniques for achieving the, that end goal. And it seemed to me that Stoicism had a much lower cost associated with uh, the techniques uh, that it was using. You know, to me, it almost seemed like that's where they actually differed from from Zen Buddhists quite a bit. Um, although th this could be a semantics thing. I remember I had a Buddhist monk once tell me that excitement was a negative emotion. And I, I think as a Westerner, that's sort of hard to to wrap my mind around, right? Like Because the, I think too often in, in our society, we value excitement, you know, shining new things over... 
just about everything else. Uh, would you agree with that? Excitement can be a negative thing. Yeah, I agree with that. So there are limits to everything and excitement. Um, too much of it is, is it becomes a negative uh, kind of emotion. So uh, the golden mean, right? You want the right level of a variety of emotions, not too much, not too little. Well, you, you uh, in the book, you talk about hedonism quite a bit. And um, hedonism seems so much more appealing than stoicism on the surface, right? It's like getting everything you want and overindulging on, on everything. But uh, why doesn't that work as a, as a, uh, a life philosophy? Well, it does for a lot of people in the sense that it, it works. And you can see people ha having lives that are devoted to uh, hedonism. Um, but is it the best life you can have? Is it the life you want to be aiming for? Because it has a downside. If you're addicted to pleasure and then suddenly the pleasure is cut off, then you feel it uh, enormously. There are all sorts of, of pleasures that... Uh, you know, once you get used to one level of pleasure, you need an even higher level of pleasure. And they're very, they tend to be very expensive to obtain. Uh, but um, plan B would be for you to walk outside, see a flower opening, and be blown away by that. Hmm. Uh, and it just seems like a no-brainer if you have a choice between those two things. Now, to appreciate the flower, to appreciate the sky, to appreciate a relationship, you know, just a, a friendship is um, going to take, you have to be mindful, you have to go to into it in a conscious kind of way. But it's much easier than, you know, if you say, well, you know, I can't be happy unless I have a certain kind of coffee roasted in a certain way and so on. Uh, you're you're going to be a lot less happy than the person who says, you know, pretty much any coffee works for me because that person <laughs> will be pleased almost anywhere he goes and gets coffee. You know, it's, it's so funny you say that. Comes you, at a price. It's funny you, you say that, uh, Bill. I I, um, uh, I I really learned to love coffee in, in Dayton. One of my favorite coffee shops in the entire country is is a place called Press down on, on Wayne Avenue. There, I've been there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite. Brett and Janelle are the the owners there. They're they're really good people. They just opened up a, a new shop over in uh, Belmont as well, and it's a beautiful minimalist work of art. And they taught me to you know, get rid of actually to really simplify my 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 coffee like coffee is in many ways a a, a sort of synecdoche for a a life well lived like you get rid of the superfluous the the sweeteners the sugar or the splenda and the the cream and and if you have a really good coffee you can enjoy it and I, the stoics take it a step further you can enjoy life even without the coffee and, and uh, I think that's beautiful because what we learn here is when you get when you boil something down to its essence, whether it's uh, a coffee or, or whatever, the the ultimate essence is not needing the thing, not having the expectation, and that enables us to to enjoy it so much more. Yeah, Seneca said there is no greater joy than the realization that you don't need something in order to be joyful. Uh, with coffee, uh, my um, son and his girlfriend were visiting. Um, they're both uh, coffee fanatics. They go to great lengths to get just the right beans and to grind them just the right way, do the right pour over with just the right amount, and they make a really great, satisfying cup of coffee. Uh, I do exactly the same with one-tenth the effort because <laughs> I have... Um, I'm satisfied. I'm easily uh -huh. satisfied. If you're a human being who's easily satisfied, it's a blessing. Mm. And because um, you go through life satisfied. If you become a connoisseur, you box yourself into a corner. And you just have to have things just so in order to be happy. And um, it's a recipe for a miserable existence. Right. It sounds to me like what you're talking about is is lowering your threshold for satisfaction, which consumerism and, and thus hedonism, I mean, 
consumerism is just a type of, of hedonism. Uh, sort of the most popular form of hedonism in, in our culture, I think, is, is consumerism because it's, it's, by the way, it's, it's accepted as often a good thing, right? In fact, we refer to individual human beings as consumers, um, which I've always found to be troublesome. Even when I was back in Ohio and I, I managed 150 retail stores, even then I, I thought like, why are we calling people consumers? Uh, because we're obviously so much more than that. But um, the, the, the lowering of the threshold is a recipe for satisfaction. What consumerism does or hedonism uh, seems to do is it continues to increase the threshold. You get the thing, you, you fulfill the, the desire, you have the sex, you eat the cake, you, you hoard the items. And then all of a sudden it's not, okay, now I'm happy. Now I'm satisfied. It's no, the bar has been raised. Yeah, psychologists refer to that uh, phenomenon as hedonic adaptation. Adaptation. You work so hard to get the thing you want, and then once you get it, you realize it was a an illusion. You're happy for a little bit, and then you're right back where you started from. And a lot of people go through life doing that. The other way to go through life is uh, not expecting a whole lot, and then whatever life delivers. You feel like a lucky, lucky person that life has uh, has delivered that. Uh, the current uh, pandemic is an interesting thing because you can either think in terms of what you've lost, but you can also think in terms of what you've gained. So well, my wife and I have been taking these really wonderful long walks, which we wouldn't have taken otherwise. We've been having these face-to-face uh, -face, uh conversations over uh, the internet with uh, people in a variety of places. We talked yesterday uh, with my wife's childhood pen pal in Scotland. And uh, these are people we wouldn't have talked to otherwise. So there's a good that comes out of it. Um, but, you know, if you say, no, I can't be happy unless I can go to restaurants and theaters, um, that's, that's too bad. That's a, sh a shame. Because if you were more open to life's sources of delight, you could still you could still be uh, enjoying the existence, right? And, and although, let me ask you this: uh, I, I certainly miss some of those things. Um, although I, I still I feel like I'm actually thriving in, in this time in a way that was unexpected uh, to me and, and, and to my family. And, and yes, there are certain inconveniences that. Um, are simply that. They're inconveniences. They're not uh, inducing panic. I, I don't feel stressed out of my mind because I can't go to my favorite restaurant or my favorite coffee shop right now. Uh, would the Stoics say it's okay to uh, have missed those things? Isn't, isn't that maybe a way to even appreciate those things is saying, yeah, I, I recognize that I missed those. And so I sh certainly must have appreciated them when, when I was able to go. Yeah, silver lining of the current situation is that it takes away from us the things that we've been taking for granted. Mm. And ideally, it'll teach us a lesson uh, about that. And what's been taken away from us isn't even the most important things. Now, there are people who are very sick. There are people who are, uh, who are dying. But I told you, we had this con conversation with uh, the woman in Scotland, and she was telling us about the stories her mother told her about World War II when London was being bombed, where it wasn't that you had to hunker down in your house, it was you had to go into a bomb shelter, an underground bomb shelter. And when you left in the morning, the question was, did your house still exist? So mm. we're a pampered bunch of individuals. We take things for granted we shouldn't. And if you learn not to take things for granted, you enhance your existence enormously. Now, we've, we've talked about how Stoicism is similar to Zen Buddhism. In what ways does it differ from, from Buddhism? It's got different psychology. So Zen, Zen uh, Buddhism, at least as I understood it, you're looking for this moment of enlightenment, and it could come tomorrow, and it could come 30 years from now, and you'll know it when it happens. Uh, uh, now, some people who have heard me say that have said, well, you don't really understand it then. Okay, maybe I don't. The interesting thing about um, Stoicism is they have specific psychological techniques 
that take, oh, half a minute to learn. So I've already told you about negative visualization. Mm -hmm. And my shorthand way of uh, putting it is if you want to find out whether Zen Buddhism works for you, uh, you might have a multi-year project on your hands. If you want to find out whether Stoicism is going to work for you, a three-day weekend is more than enough time. Oh, <laughs> and a pandemic? Ideal. Ideal <laughs> circumstances. Well, let me ask you, how do you think that the the Stoics of two millennia ago would have handled uh, if they were if they were transported into today's world? Um, how would they have handled the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, to begin with, they would have been just astonished uh, because this would seem like a, a, a dream world to them. What? You have flushing toilets? What? You have indoor uh, drinkable water? Mm. What? You have air conditioning? And they would go through this. And then, you know, if somebody said, yeah, but I'm still not happy, they would have <laughs> said, well, then you're a fool. You're an absolute uh, fool. Now, um, they would say, uh, we are now potentially, if you have the right frame of mind, being given this huge reminder in that it is, you shouldn't take things in life for granted. You should appreciate things in life because they can vanish in an instant. In this case, they were taken away from us, but you could have gotten sick in which case you wouldn't be hunkering down at home. You'd be hunkering down in a hospital. Uh, you could have been dead, in which mm. case you're deprived of these sources of delight forever. So um, there's a silver lining. Uh, you know, it also toughens you up. Uh, so uh, since writing um, Guide to the Good Life, I, I, you know, last fall, uh, my book, The Stoic Challenge, came out. And I described how Stoics, when things are going well, will go out of their way to find things that are difficult to do, challenging to do, simply to keep themselves tough and resilient because they know that life is full of surprises. And when one of those surprises comes, then you want to be ready for it. Uh, so we, we have kind of an involuntary surprise here. And uh, mm. I like to tell people, you should be spending these days writing a story with your life. And it's got to be a true story, but it's a story that someday you will tell uh, to your grandchildren, to your great-grandchildren about the time of the great pandemic and about how there were people who were letting, them, uh, uh, letting themselves get depressed about it, but you took what you had and you did the best with it. And you made personal connections. You did a, a bunch of things. Um, so it's, 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 it's what you make out of it. And what you make out of it is this psychological phenomenon. Well, those same Stoics, they're certainly different from the Stoics today. But in what ways are, are people like yourself or, or Ryan Holiday, who consider yourselves Stoics, how would you say you're different? I mean, obviously, we have the, the modern conveniences, you know, the, the air conditioning and the cell phone and uh, and airplanes, et cetera. But, but uh, f philosophically, would you say that you're, you're different uh, from, you know, say Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or Seneca? Um, there would be differences. I mean, in, in particular, in my own practice of Stoicism, uh, I've layered on a lot of the discoveries in psychology in the last half century. So mm. they've come up with a, a much better understanding of how uh, human personalities, the human mind works. So I layer that over what they've done. Um, one thing we have in common, and I think uh, anybody who is a, truly a stoic, you know, there's the old thing, is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? A stoic, a true stoic, will not only say the glass is half full, but he will say, and isn't it wonderful that glass exists? You can mm. see through it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and it, it's durable and it's easy to wash and then go on from there. So that, that notion of whatever you've got, you're going to be very appreciative of it. And at the same time, you're going to be ready to let go of it because, you know, that's how life works. How do you think the 
the Stoics would have approached social media? With trepidation, as I think everybody should, uh, we're in the middle of this really interesting uh, social exper- uh, experiment. And I guess in 10 or 20 years from now, we'll be able to uh, find out <laughs> how it worked and the effect it had on us. Uh, people are addicted to it. And, um, you know, if people were addicted to joy, that's a good thing. But the the internet, it, it probably has some very interesting negative impacts on people. Uh, uh, you find yourself fixated on creating a public image of yourself. And, uh, you know, you, you have a Twitter, you have Facebook, you have all of these things where you can present an image of you. And then you start judging success in terms of followers. Um, and it's one way you can go, but it can end up being as hollow as many of the things we we pursue. Uh, I would rather have one true friendship than a million followers. Because mm. uh, you know what? The friend's going to be there when your car breaks down at two in the morning and you need help. And the followers will read about it the next day. It's, a, it's just a different thing. Well, we, we've talked about Zen Buddhism. Uh, what about the Abraham, Abrahamic religions, you know, Christianity or Islam or uh, Judaism? Uh, are there parallels between Stoicism and, and these religions? I think the um, uh, early Christians borrowed from uh, the Stoics. The, the uh, early Jews couldn't have because uh, Stoicism hadn't come in, into existence yet. But there is some evidence that the uh, early Christians were influenced by um, Stoicism. At the same time, um, there is a completely different feel to Christianity. Uh, There is this notion of um, sacrifice. There is this notion of it's, well, I don't know, but but it it clearly has a different feel, but there's an argument that there was some kind of influence involved. What about existentialism? You, you talk about that briefly. Maybe uh, contrast the two. I really don't know much. What I did know, I've forgotten, so I'm not <laughs> going to go there. Okay. Uh, you do write quite a bit about cynicism uh, in, in the book. And, and um, uh, cynicism, I mean, uh, because the, the, in English, the, the term has a negative connotation always. But uh, how did the Stoics differ from, from the cynics? Yeah, you know, you have this interesting thing. You also have the Epicureans. And uh, so in my own thinking, I distinguish between what I call the uppercase S Stoics and the lowercase, excuse me, S uh, Stoics. So um, the the lowercase S Stoics, that's just this public perception that these are people who uh, are simply, um, you know, anti-emotion. Uppercase S, Stoics, these are people who gave it a lot of thought and came up with a more nuanced position. Same is true of Epicureans. They would not have gone around as party animals. And the cynics also um, were not simply these negative individuals. And one thing, when I did the research for the book on desire that struck me, is they were all interested in this notion of, uh, you know, uh, uh, tranquility as the goal. They just mm-hmm. had different paths to get there. And the, and the Zen Buddhists have a different path as well. So it becomes an interesting question of if you share the goal, what's the best way to get to the goal? And they, they just had different ways of pursuing it. We've got some surprise questions here from our audience. I thought I'd throw a few of these out here. Seku asks, were the Stoics also minimalists? I think my answer to this, and, and maybe you can expand on it, um, I think all Stoics were minimalists, not all minimalists are Stoics. And we're talking about minimalism as a lifestyle. Minimalism being your sort of the decluttering of your home uh, to 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 focus on and be more intentional, uh, to focus on that, which is truly important. I would say that, yeah, all, all Stoics were minimalist in that sense. Um, uh, also there was 
I mean, I, I think most people were, were, were minimalists 2,000 years ago um, because we didn't have you know, same-day shipping and, and, and all of the sort of trappings of the modern world. The, the, we've, we, in our, in our current world, have removed all the friction. And when you remove all the friction, you also lose traction. Um, but uh, I, I think that some people embrace minimalism or the sort of decluttering aspects of it without in, embracing any of the, the lifestyle philosophy of, of stoicism. And so I think there's a lot to be gained once we move beyond the material possessions. Yeah, remember, though, that you, within the Stoics, you had different levels of materialism. So I, we talked about Seneca before, and of course, Marcus Aurelius lived in a palace because he was the emperor. So uh, you can distinguish between being in a very materially uh, f- fancy environment and then how you relate to the material things and mm-hmm. the importance they have in your in your life. So Seneca lived in a palace, lived uh, in a luxurious uh, situation. And if you said to him, you know what, it could all go away tomorrow, he'd say, oh, yeah, fine. Mm. It's here now. I'm going to enjoy it. But I'm going to be ready for it to disappear. Uh, You had people at the other end, Musonius Rufus, who's who's one of my, uh, my favorites, who said, no, 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 no. You should try to avoid that. So he would be a true minimalist, but there were Stoics who didn't take that route, but wouldn't be like the kind of modern materialists you encounter, because these are people, they don't just say, while it's here, I'm going to enjoy it. Instead, they crave it, and they work very hard to get it. And then once they get it, they don't appreciate it for very long. Yeah, that word craving comes up a lot in in Buddhism, and, and uh, uh, that that craving is definitely a it it leads to a discontent. Although in the moment, it can often feel good that 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 craving, the sort of the sort of lust for for things or or achievements or pursuits, and or you you even talked about social media, you know that that can just be another status symbol. You know how many followers you have, et cetera. Yep. And, and that sort of craving tends to lead to discontent. It's a dopamine high. When you buy something, you get that high, and it doesn't last. And if you get that high a lot, it gets harder for you to get that high. Your uh, cell phone is a, a dopamine slot machine as mm-hmm. a, a way to do it. Because when you hear the little ding, what do you do? You look, and it gives you some news, and often it's news that your social status has just risen or that there's a, an email that you're very happy to get because it's an indication of your social status. Um, and it's changing the way we live. It's changing our relationships in a better or worse way. We'll find out. Tune in again 20 years from now. Right, right. And by the way, it's also an individual choice. I think, I think the answer to that will be yes. It'll be both a better and worse way depending on on how we use it. The, I mean, it, it, I can use a chainsaw to cut down a tree that's getting ready to take your yes. roof out, or I can use it to cut up your neighbor. Um, yep. and, and it's really up to me to determine how to use these tools. Uh, I think the, the additional layer with social media, unfortunately, is there are thousands of enge- high paid engineers and demographers and statisticians who are working very hard to sort of divorce your attention from uh, uh, whatever is important onto their product or service. And, and so, uh, it is an extra sort of layer. Although if you go back to the Stoics, I think it was Seneca who said, uh, um, put down your books and go live life sort of thing. Right. And, and, um, I, I think that even back then they were struggling with similar things. I mean, now it's like, oh my gosh, how do you have time to read a book? Um, but but uh, we do the same thing with social media. A book can be a pacifier. Social media can be a pacifier. Um, or they can both be things that we use intentionally to enhance our lives. Yeah, it is a choice. And I'm not saying it's a, a choice that should be taken uh, away from anybody. But you should enter into it. You know, it's very easy to slide in and show you, sh- you should do so in a thoughtful way. So I have no Facebook Uh, presence. I have no Twitter presence. I've been told that I would sell more books as an author if I did. 
But I know it would change my uh, kind of social consciousness in, a, in an interesting way. And I've, I've chosen to, to bypass that. I'm also a geezer. So for me not to do it is um, just, it's the path of least resistance. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things. If you're uh, a minimalist and you're considering, gee, do I need a new car? Uh, I, I mean, another thing to consider is uh, that social presence do I need as much of it uh, of the exact kind that I have, or can I use less? Yeah, and, and it doesn't have to be binary in, in that sense. And I like right. that. Can, can, can I use less? Not um, can I jettison all of it? And, and I think often that that is a tendency, especially for someone like me who um, wants to get aggressive and tackle a problem. And so uh, I tend to you know. I'll, get rid of it all. And, and, um, but the truth is sometimes we can just dial it back to what is appropriate. If we're using yeah. an inappropriate amount, we may be able to dial it back. And Oh, by the way, if we dial it back enough, we might realize, Oh, it's not actually adding value that, that we thought it was adding. And, and, and also I find that sometimes temporarily removing something from our lives, realizing that, Oh, I can go off of this for 30 days and the world will keep spinning. And I might realize that, oh, I don't even need to reintroduce it after this period of time because it wasn't actually providing the value that I pretended it was, it was providing. It was, it was an imaginary value. Yeah, let me add that uh, podcasts like this podcast, I'm, I'm now a big fan of podcasts because you can hear some very um, interesting, intelligent, open-minded discussions that would simply not be possible if there weren't people who were uh, looking at these issues carefully and, and taking unpopular positions on them. So for me, also in my research, I used to have to go to the library in order to get sources. And, you know, that would mean driving to a library, climbing to the third floor, looking in a card catalog. Now I can just punch into Google and it comes up. So there, uh, the internet uh, has come to play a very important role in my life. And at the same time, it's like anything I do, you, you, you look at it carefully and, and you, you look at its enticing aspects and you think, okay, how far do I want to go in? You know, most of our, our audience for this podcast uh, skews pre predominantly toward women, uh, although we have a, a large number of, of men who listen to the podcast as well. But I've, I've, I don't know, maybe I've just noticed this. That I've noticed that uh, people who uh, often talk about stoicism online or share st uh, stoic quotes or books, uh, it tends to be a predominantly male audience. Do, do you think there's a, a reason that stoicism maybe appeals more to men than women? And then also, how, how can we how can we make it more palatable for, for women as well? Yeah, it's interesting because I do get email uh, from people who have read the books, and I haven't kept close track. Uh, my perception is that it's um, pretty, pretty close, the male-to-female uh, ratio there. And I've also given talks, though, at which there seem to be more men. So I'm not really sure how the numbers would, would shake out if you did it. There is absolutely no reason why uh, a stoicism is better suited to men than women or uh, vice versa. Uh, one thing that could be happening is that the word stoicism, you know, it sounds like what you're doing is grimly standing there and taking what the world can throw at you, which right. is something you expect a cowboy to do or or something like that. But that's, that's incorrect. So maybe it's just that misperception. Right. It could just be, the, I often talk about minimalism being the, the best and the worst word to describe what Ryan and I do with our podcast or our films or our books. Uh, it's, it's the best word because it sort of, it shocks people, you know, it conjures images of, of stark white walls and empty warehouse spaces and, and owning nothing and empty closets. And that's fine if that, that's what you want. But but um, it's in, 
imperfect word because also it's not as radical as one might think. And I would, I would actually argue the same thing for stoicism. You hear, you, you think of stoic and I, and I think that's a perfect image of, I think of a cowboy as a stoic person, but I, I also, um, realize that, uh, that isn't, that isn't necessarily the portrait of, of stoicism. Anyone, man, woman, young, old, rich, poor, can benefit from, from some of these philosophies. Sure. And uh, I don't know of anybody who needs all the stuff they've, they've got. Uh, and so it's, it's just one of those things you, you look out at the world and you see people uh, working hard to obtain something despite you know, the long history of realizing that getting it hasn't worked <laughs> and thinking, you know, well, this next time is going to be different, except uh-huh. that it isn't. Anybody, any life, and this includes Stoics, whatever life you're living, you do owe it to yourself to take some time to think about that life, to think about your goals in that life, and to think about whether you're making progress towards those goals. And if you say your goal is to become a billionaire, think about that. Is that really going to be satisfying? Are there other things you should be pursuing? Yeah, I find quite often that that goal is an empty goal unless there is a reason for it. If if the actual goal is I want to make a billion dollars because it can save you know uh, seventeen thousand lives or whatever the answer is there, then the the actual goal is you know how do I save seventeen thousand lives and all I need to make a billion dollars to do that. That that's a different thing. That's a stepping stone toward your actual objective. Yeah, and I start out the the book uh, guided the good life by asking the question, what is your philosophy of life? What are your goals? What are your plans for attaining those goals? And the amazing thing is most people have given zero thought to that. What they do is assume somebody else has done the thinking. So they look around them and they say, oh, everybody is pursuing material wealth. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'll pursue as well. When in fact, you know, if no one's given it thought, you don't want to listen to what other people think. You want to do your own thinking. Or you want to look back in history at people who have given it some thinking and what did they conclude and maybe listen to them instead. Yeah, we, we have a, a values worksheet on our website that people can download for free. And uh, we put it out there because Ryan and I often talk about values and beliefs and the different types of values we we have in our lives. And, and uh, I realized that when I had quantified mine a decade ago, and by the way, they, they continue to, to shift a little bit, um, I hadn't put it in a place where it was easily accessible to other people because most of us, including myself for the longest time, never even thought about what my values are. So I certainly couldn't pursue the values. I couldn't align my actions with my values if I didn't know what they were. And, and, and so having that sort of worksheet identifying the difference between what we call foundational goals and structure or foundational values, structural values, surface values, and, and imaginary values. That's the real, the big one for most of us. We, we pretend a lot of things are valuable that aren't necessarily valuable at all, but they get all of our most precious resources, our time, our attention, our energy, our skills are all dedicated toward, uh, these imaginary values a lot of the time. Um, and, and if we don't know what's, uh, what our imaginary values are, what's in the way, and we don't know what our real values are, then how the heck are we going to try to to live a fulfilling or, or meaningful life? Yes, instead we're going to mislive the one life we have to live. And mm. isn't that tragic? It is indeed. Uh, Six has a question. How do you live a stoic existence with a family? I often get this question with respect to to, to minimalism. Um People are, yeah, it's easy to say you, you, when I first embraced minimalism, I, 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 I had just gotten out of a marriage and, and so I'm, I'm married now with a six-year-old daughter, but at the time it was, oh, it's so, it's easy for this young single person to, to, to embrace minimalism, try it with a family. But of course, the, one of the people who inspired me early on was a Zen Buddhist who's a minimalist named Leo Babalta. And he has six kids and a wife and a whole minimalist family. And, Mm. Um, what I realized is that you can in- embrace these different philosophies with a family. It is more difficult. However, it does seem to be more important because you have other people uh, who depend on you in a way. 
Yeah, and a family can be a, a great source of delight, a great source of joy. And yet, look at all look at all the people who have families, and simply ignore the uh, the people in the families, all the people who are too distracted with other things to really form the close relationships they could be uh, taking. So a Stoic is not going to take their kids for granted, not going to take their spouse for granted, not going to take their parents for granted, uh, and is going to try to extract as much delight as is humanly possible from the situation. Mm. Um, so it's compatible with having uh, a family. Uh, and the Stoics themselves had different arguments about uh, whether you should be going out of your way to have a family or not. So Musonius might have been an outlier there. Uh, Tell me about you that. Look at the other Stoics, and they did. Uh, so. so you say Musonius uh, was against having a family or, or pursuing it, rather? He, he, he tends to think that less is more. But then he <laughs> there, there's passages where he talks about uh, going outside and seeing uh, you know, a family with the parents and the children out out in the sunlight, walking together, and and just you know, the feeling of this is one of the greatest delights uh, that that a human being can enjoy. And yet, think of all the people who go out with their kids, and it's just a quarrel, and everybody's got their own cell phone they're looking at instead of talking to each other. Um, it's what you make of it. And uh, you can go into a family existence and you can uh, turn it into a really uh, vehicle of self-transformation or not. And a lot of people don't let the fact that they have a family have any impact on their life, on the way they live it, which is tragic. Semi has a question for us. What's one thing a Stoic does daily? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there, there's more than, than one thing, but is there a commonality that you notice, a sort of daily practice among Stoics? I do negative visualization multiple times a day. It's really? now become reflex for me. Mm. Uh, and my wife knows that I've been doing it because she'll hear me call from the other room to her, thanks for existing. Because, um, mm. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what we take for granted. And it's amazing the power of if we just give ourselves a moment to think of what, what life would be like if we lost the thing, um, that it can just change our attitude. Suddenly you go from being somebody who's feeling sorry for himself to realizing what a lucky human being you are. Motivated Stoic has a question. How can Stoicism be used to combat negativity in the workplace? Uh, I, I assume this, this, uh, your answer to this would probably apply to places outside of the workplace as well. But I think it's one thing that we, many of us experience. We experience uh, toxic relationships or just people who are often very negative in our lives. How, how does stoicism combat that? Or maybe how does it just help us deal with it? Yeah, negativity can take different forms. So um, I, I, one of the books that has a stoic uh, component in it is a, a book called A, Sl a Slap in the Face. And what there I'm doing is talking about insults, about how you should respond to insults from other people. So that's one of the worst, worst ways, not the worst, but one of the uh, worst ways that uh, negativity can affect you. So other people talk you down, other people insult you, other people put you down. Uh, what's the best way to respond? And the Stoics actually gave that some, some thought. The best way to respond is by doing nothing at all, by carrying on as if the person had mm. said nothing. And it's, it's really interesting if you try this, because at first they'll assume you didn't hear the insult. And then... Um, <laughs> so they just ratchet it up, make it. it louder? They'll repeat it. And then you say, yeah, I, I heard that the, the first time. And then you just carry on. They don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Insults hurt because you let them hurt. Uh, oh. so if we're, you're out for a walk and a dog barks at you and you let that wreck your day, you're a fool. You're an absolute fool because it's a stupid dog barking at you. <laughs> if a human barks at you by insulting you in some uh, crude way, uh, again, you're a, you're a fool. You should just sort of realize that person has issues. That person's, uh, crude and, uh, I'm, I feel sorry for them. 
Uh, I have this uh, one thing that I've done routinely in class, and it's uh, interesting to do because uh, I try to lead students to think about things that they normally don't think about. And one of them, they'll start talking about politically incorrect speech and how the negative impact it has on them. And, and we talk about that, and we develop that idea. And I say, well, you know, the Stoics said that the proper way to respond to an insult is by shrugging it off, because a person who does that sort of thing if you're, if you're spending your time thinking seriously about that, then you're wasting your time. And then I give them, this is a fun exercise, I tell them I want them to think for the next 10 seconds of what's the worst insult you could possibly say to another person. And so they do. And then I say, okay, on three, I want you to insult me by saying that. One... <laughs> Two, three, and then you hear the whole room erupt in insults. And at, when they're done, I just shrug my soul, shoulder and say, it's just noise. It's just noise. <laughs> now, having said that, there was one time when I had one student who had attitude issues, who waited till the noise died down. And then I heard him say, old man. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting because, you know, I, I felt that one, but all, all the others, and there were some pretty interesting insults, uh, were, were, were water off the back of a duck. Mm. Well, let me ask you, are, are there any coherent criticisms of stoicism and, and how would you defend against those? Well, if you're uh, any of the other groups, if you're an Epicurean, if you're a cynic, if you're a Buddhist, uh, you're going to say that uh, Stoicism isn't the best way to go. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say that Stoicism isn't for everybody. Um, I, there are people, I call them congenital Stoics, who will slide right in. And in fact, that some people will say, you know, I've basically been doing this all my life. I just mm. didn't have fancy names for it. I, I've been doing negative visualization. I, that's just a fancy name for it. Uh, there'll be other people who find it more challenging. So is it right for everybody? Don't know. Uh, but here's the interesting thing about stoicism. You'll find out very quickly, very low entry cost, whether it's working for you or it's not. Um, so, and you can do it in secret, you know, you don't even have to go around, you know, getting stoic tattoos, give it a try. What do you have to lose? And then what do you have to gain? So, uh, so there are people for whom it probably doesn't work, uh, but they owe it to themselves to find out that it doesn't work and then to go on and find out what does work. Yeah, it's definitely worth a shot. I, I think we should end with this question from Kieran. Here, Kieran says, what are the potential pitfalls and drawbacks of stoicism? So if someone does try it out, uh, are, there any, are there any pitfalls? Are there any drawbacks, any negatives? Uh, I haven't yet found a, a, a drawback, and I've been doing this for, uh, I've been a self-described stoic for 15 years now. Uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. I keep discovering new wrinkles that uh, I hadn't thought of before mm. that uh, have a profound positive impact. I mean, w one of them is this notion of, of spending your days writing the story that you will someday get to tell, writing the story with your life uh, and your actions in the day that you'll someday get to tell. Um, what a great, what a great way to proceed. Uh, and, but the Stoics didn't have a lot to say about that. So for me, it's just gotten richer with the passage of time. Uh, I, 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 so I can't, I, 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 you know, I, I know I sound like a salesman saying this, but <laughs> I, uh, for me, it was an easy fit and uh, the shoe fits. So I continue to wear it. I'm with you. I, I, I sometimes get this question with respect to, to minimalism. And I wish I had a sexy answer where it's like, yeah, one out of 10 people are going to yeah. find out that, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, but I think the truth is that we, we've, we've learned that uh, as with stoicism, minimalism may not be for everyone. If you're perfectly contented 
by the status quo. If you're perfectly contented with uh, consuming more and, and a hedonistic lifestyle, I'm not going to judge you. Uh, minimalism for me has never been about uh, comparing my life to other people's lives. And it hasn't been about proselytizing either. And I don't, I don't get that sense from you that you're out here trying to convert people to stoicism. I, I, I get the, I, I get the feeling that you found something that works really well for you, something, some wisdom that you've seen work really well for several thousand years, and you have found a way to communicate it really well through your books. I've read uh, A Guide to the Good Life. I'm going to check out The Stoic Challenge, but we're going to put a link to all of your other books in uh, the show notes as well, Bill. I'm, I'm really grateful you took the time to... Uh, to spend this time with me and, and with our audience. And I want to acknowledge you for creating something meaningful. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a treat. Thank you for inviting me. Beautiful. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>